everyone. Happy Friday and welcome to Mad Hat Economics. I'm Jackie Stein here and we're talking about the election today. I'm with Professor David Just. Hello. Saren. Hey. And Jade. Hi everyone. So, we have quite a shock slash elated effect from the voters and, well, non-voters who probably won't claim, um, but <laughs> claim, uh, so, 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 just setting this up, I mean, uh, Tuesday night, right? Yep. Tuesday night, I, the, the predictions on what was going to happen were just so, so clear, right? It was, it was going to be Hillary Clinton in a landslide. Right. And... Guessing that it was just going to be so such a, a snooze fest, I, I decided, hey, I'll just go to bed early and not even bother watching. And and five minutes before I'm about to go to bed, my wife says, hey, let's just check the election results. And so she turns it on and and you know she says, hey, you've got to come here, you got to see this. And and I, I I needless to say, I didn't sleep at all that night. Right? It was just right. it was too just astounding how different the results were from the predictions. Yeah, and the New York Times had an article, there's 1,024 ways, I believe, that Hillary Clinton could win this election, and there were, uh, <laughs> like, 600 or 500 that Donald Trump could, and, well, straight <laughs> out, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and they had that wonderful graphic that just showed the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going right, like, as the from votes the came Times, in. Right? Mm-hmm, from the New York Times. So a, completely yeah, started flipped. thinking that, that Trump had this 20% chance and Clinton had an 80% chance, and then by 8 o'clock, their probabilities completely flipped. Mm-hmm. And, and wow. <laughs> yeah. I think what was interesting, too, is that you have, like, 538 that's critiquing certain polls and weighting certain polls more heavily than others. And then you see in the New York Times, and I believe NPR, like, different articles about how some of the, the surveying is wrong and that Hillary's actually much better off and she's going to win the election. But really, it was complete opposite. You know, they're criticizing this 19-year-old boy, imagine, in Illinois, saying the, the, that he's the, LA the one. Times poll, the LA right? Times yeah. poll, and that the, he's skewing all the data because everybody else is saying Hillary Clinton's going to win it. And, uh, well... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what, but but even so, if if the LA, the LA Times got it right, Ouch. but if they got it right because of this one guy out in Illinois, that's that's happenstance, right? Right. right. And what about the the false consensus that we kind of see in the media? A lot of the media is um, in the Northeast. We have them um, pulling a lot of blue. Um, their assumptions, their predictions are all around Hillary winning. Um, can you guys offer any perspective on how that might be so easy for us to do? Well, I think I think here in this ivory tower of Cornell, um, <laughs> we definitely get a lot of blue. I think part of it had to do with uh, the Facebook and how we end up just seeing the feeds of things that we like yep. and we don't see the other side. I think part of it, too, could be just that a lot of the stuff that Trump said towards the end, people felt that they would be negatively looked upon if they expressed support. And so I think you see some self some self editing across as well. And so perhaps this this silent this silent um, Trojan horse or whatever you want to call it just yeah. happened and emerged. And I, I, I almost think I so you have this this you know the media elite that are that are sitting in the northeast and and the ivory tower types like us that are sitting deep 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 in blue territory and a narrative was created about Trump that made him not just an, an unacceptable candidate but abhorrent and i really do think that might have had some of the the effect of 
making these these folks disappear from the polls. I mean, just by way of of, uh, of example, I've, I've been at several meetings since the election on campus, and there has not been a single one of them where anybody has admitted to having been a Trump supporter. There have been there have been lots of people who've talked about their their you know they, they were enthusiastic Hillary supporters. The speech is such that it's expected that everybody I'm talking to is is a Hillary supporter, and it makes it so if if you know if there were any of them sitting around, I'm sure they'd be too intimidated to speak. Half the country, something like close to forty percent of the state we're located in that we, that we're supposed to be serving, um, voted for him, and that makes it really super unlikely that there was nobody in any of those meetings really. <laughs> and I think, I think part of that too goes into also just like how many the, the system it is right there's two people and they're going to represent all of your views and so some people are just they are much more selective they have a preference for certain aspects of it and I mean it's also some for some people it's in their economic interest so for us here in Cornell you know and perhaps trying to go into more white collar professions uh, there are places in the area that are dying out hollowing out blue collar areas and so for them what they're getting offered from Washington is not what they want to continue seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, uh, I was reminded the night that these, you know, the election night when everything just went nuts. I, I was reminded quite a bit of, of the election in 2000 mm-hmm. where, you know, they started out the night and it wasn't very long in. They called, they called Florida for, and I forget which way it went first. I think it was, it was for Gore, it was and, Gore then, and then and for then Bush, Bush and, and then they uncalled it for mm-hmm. everybody. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it, it's, uh, the statistical models just broke, right? They, they, uh, they couldn't figure out what was going on. They called it there early because, you know, there it really did seem like they called it early because it looked like the results were coming in exactly as they had sort of anticipated and they didn't pay attention as much to the statistical power that they should have. And, and when you, when you look at where they had left to vote, it, it should have been, should have been held off. Right. And that was part of the reform. And that reform seemed to do us very well for the last, you know, 16 years. What happened? <laughs> well, I think something interesting too, because we were watching um, NBC at my house. It was an ice cream celebration slash. You know, it's good that there's ice cream there. <laughs> was it a celebration? I, or yeah, I did myself in my room for a few minututes. I'll admit to that. Um, but there's something that was really interesting. That, you know, the NBC commentator is saying, "Well, we're doing Michigan right now. Detroit's not all the way in yet, and so this particular area has this percentage of African American voters. You know, and they're they're very much saying, you know, in the media, like." Well, this county is a college town, so she needs to get. I think it was like I think eventually when going back to Detroit, it was something like she needs two hundred thousand votes. She needs to pull two hundred thousand votes from this county to stay above water. And so at the end, it really just this particular county is going to be it, and this one's not. And I don't know how they're about the city about the rural urban difference is that where they're trying to pull votes from. I don't know. Yeah, and and so when it came down to it, it it seemed like there were a couple of different things that happened. There, there were a whole bunch of voters that stayed home. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. That they were anticipating were actually going to be there. Um, and there were some that showed up that they didn't anticipate showing up. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. I think there's less millennials who turned out this time around compared to when Barack Obama 
I'm going to like to. The, I don't, just not as excited about. I don't know yeah. what the definition millennial is. I'm told anything under 30 is, but supposedly they didn't come out. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. Another reason we can harp on millennials. Right. And then all the other blue collar people just came out of, you know, the woodworks and people mm-hmm. who felt left behind. Like um, we were talking about earlier, people who felt like their jobs weren't, you know, being their interests weren't being represented. Well, it's, so. it's an interesting thing because, uh, you know, historically there had always been at least one party that that embraced this idea of protectionism to try and protect low-skill jobs from from trade, specifically from right. trade. And uh, that pretty much ended about the time Bill Clinton was in office. He, he opened the doors to trade for the Democratic Party, and the Republican Party never took on this, this protectionist attitude until uh, Trump. <laughs> right. And yeah. for, so for at least 24 years, this group had nobody to get excited about. And also adding with that too, with, with trade, a lot of these jobs are going, are, are not there anymore. And so I think the Democrat Party um, represents itself as the party of the working man, the union protecting party, but there are no more unions to need protecting. <laughs> but, I that's mean, a very good point. <laughs> so, so why support the Democratic Party when you know, like, and that in that sense too? That took a long time, though. I mean, that took a long time for that sort of evolution. And and I, I've got to say though, you look at some of the polling about about Trump that's coming out of these areas, and it's really sort of uh, you know contradictory messages coming out of it, right? I mean, so, so they're wild about him. Um, they don't think he has experience. They're worried that he's going to do certain things in office, but they voted for him and they're enthusiastic about it. <laughs> I think that speaks a lot about how people feel about the current system, about they feel um, about politics being being conniving and being, you know, trading deals and how um, Hillary and her emails and, and just not feeling content with this current system. And they feel like, okay, maybe this guy, he's got business experience. He knows how to run a profit. He'll come in untainted by the system and do the right thing, <laughs> essentially, or do what would be best for our country overall. And I think I think part of it too is perhaps just kind of the attitudes of these areas. Um, mm-hmm. America getting soft. America not coming with that yeah. red line tape. Um, I think with with regards to kind of the rhetoric around Trump, a lot of it's very simple. Like if you don't like a trade deal, don't sign it. Easy as you know, you know, like we should renegotiate. And so, for example, I think right now there's a lot of uh, at least my family in West Virginia I feel a lot of like they're champions because now Trudeau says he'll renegotiate NAFTA. Because Donald Trump said he'll renegotiate NAFTA. And I don't know if causation is correlation here or what's happening. But I think that some of it, too, is just that they, a lot of these areas kind of have this sense of this independent person, you know, the farmer, the farmer who's, you know, the land. And they want, um, they they take pride in that. They take pride in being self-sufficient. They take pride in a man who do, do, do wants what he wants and will, will not uh, settle for less. So yeah. it, it speaks volumes, though, thinking about the, the behavior behind this. You know, it speaks volumes if they say they're uncertain of exactly what he's going to be able to accomplish or exactly what they're getting in this candidate and they're willing to vote for him. That We have a tendency to try and back away from things that are, are a bit ambiguous or risky. They must be in a pretty tight spot to actually want to do that. Mm-hmm. But, but then you think about the flip side of this. I mean, we're seeing, um, I, I guess we're calling them protests. Right. <laughs> 
but protests that involve burning cars and things uh, in, in a lot of the cities responding to this, they're responding much, you know, in a very, very different way to exactly the same event. Um, I think it has a lot to do with that risk and what they, they worry about coming out of this. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious to see what's going to happen in terms of the southern cities, because that's, I think, where the racial dimension, a lot of this conservative, um, I guess, uh, right, this alternative right wing is going to come out. There's a lot of talk about, like, hate crimes or something that universities are facing around the country, but the protests that we see in New York, the protests that we see in Portland are not necessarily, I think, perhaps a little biased here, the people that will be affected by Trump presidency as much as places in the Deep South where you have this, these clusters of minorities with conservatism and, like, I don't know. I think that's where the protests will be very interesting to watch as they develop. In areas, especially on the border with immigration issues, Florida, California, people who are very concerned about immigration there and who blame a lot of the um, drug war on drug problems, whether they're attributable or not, that's what they think. And they see, you know, that as an invasion of their safety and of their environment. And they think, and that's what I was in Florida talking to some people and they thought the wall was such a good idea because it was going to make it safer for them. But they were also concerned about the transfer programs, people who think conservatively and don't like government transfers of wealth, um, don't want more people coming into the country and increasing the tax rates. So because they need transfers of money. So there's also that issue as well. People, um, you know, who like Jade was talking about, want to work for their wealth or want to, you know, sling on the the hard helmet and just <laughs> carve their own, carve their own way, <laughs> carve their own path, you know, do it themselves. Um, and they don't appreciate people who they stigmatize as being um, leeches of government money. So, and I think they associate a lot of that with the Democratic Party and their stance in the past. So, they think. Um, would it, do you have any thoughts on this, Siren? No, I just like I was just about to ask. Like, do you think it will be different? Like, if media show like more realistic results, like about the protests. I mean, now they're like there's a big shock, so like the, these protests are coming up. But like, if maybe media has shown like us the more realistic results before that the Trump yeah. is gonna win, so maybe. I I, I absolutely question. believe there would be a very different result. I think the shock really drove a lot of this. The the fact that they had been told all along. Hillary's going to be the president. Hillary's going to be the president. And it's going to be an easy walk to victory for her. And they didn't know until that, that night, night, right? Yeah. I, I think that just pulled the rug out from under them. And they feel a huge, huge loss they wouldn't have otherwise. And I think, too, just adding to this, something I just thought about now, and I don't know if you want to elaborate on this, is a lot of my friends are do Teach for America right now. And so a lot of them are, were not prepared to have these difficult conversations with students, especially students of minority or girls, um, young girls, after this election, or what that means to them. And, of course, there are definitely cultural differences across my friends, depending on where they are in the country. Yeah. But, I mean, I think that shock means, you know, the fact that Cornell had to cry in. Um, that was headline Sorry. in the USA today. But, you know, you know, one of my friends, one of their children asked, like, will I be deported? Another person said, well, like, could I ever be president? These are, like, real I, questions. Yeah. And, these, and these, you know, in terms of oppressional behavior about it's, what is a normative and what is not. It's it's interesting. You know, there is. There, there are a lot of these fears about, you know, and some piece of these fears are coming from the portrayal the media gave that maybe wasn't quite realistic. 
Um, some of these Quite. fears, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and some of these fears are, are coming from, you know, if you are an immigrant here, you probably really don't have a full understanding of the institutions or a full faith in the institutions um, where, you know, Trump really wouldn't have the ability to pull off the types of, of things they're worried about on his own. There might be other repercussions that they need to be worried about. And, and those are, you know, it's, you can't tell somebody their fears aren't valid at all because mm-hmm. um, there's certainly reasons to fear under a new, uh, this new presidency. But it's, you know, understanding exactly what's within reason and what's not, that's, that's not something we're emotionally good at right. when we face this type of shock. And yeah, and I, th- I think part of it just goes back to not having that conversation with people living in a bubble here, rural America living in a bubble themselves, and then these two bubbles never get to meet eye to eye. Perhaps internet is supposed to fix that conversation across. Perhaps it maybe just reiterates the walls of this bubble. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then eventually all these bubbles are exploding and everyone's confused why. Well, so, so, <laughs> so you're... You've come here from West Virginia, um, yes. and, and so you've got plenty of people um, in your family from the other side of the bubble. You probably have communications with them. I, I uh, So I've lived my entire life in Berkeley, California, and, and D.C., and here. I've been inside the liberal bubble, but my family all lives in Oklahoma, and I've, I've, I've come to understand something of their life and, and their motives. Uh, I don't think that's the majority of people who are in Ithaca or or New York or any of these. <laughs> and, and that's something to say here, right? Like and at Cornell, I'm into it. The people who work in the dining halls, who service these buildings, they have completely different, I think, views of how the world works compared to the students who who go here. And I think that just even shows, I mean, yeah, who, commutes, so who commutes in versus who lives here, who is yeah. in the bubble, who comes infiltrates the bubble and leaves at night. So, so for anybody listening who's not familiar with, with Cornell... Um, we're, we're in the middle of nowhere in, in New York. So there's this tiny town called Ithaca that is, is deeply, deeply, deeply blue and, and maybe a little bit off the spectrum blue. There are two hills. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then just outside, we're surrounded by, by rural New York, which is heavily, heavily red. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I, so I, I got my hair cut this morning. I went to the barber and I, 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 you know, I got up the courage after a little while to ask him, so have people been talking about the election here? Have, have people been asking, or are they trying to avoid it, talking about it, or are they trying to talk about it? And and I was I was astounded by his answer, because this is a barbershop in Ithaca, right? And he says, actually, everybody who's talked about it is just elated. They're super excited about this. They are, you know, they finally, you know, something good to hope about, right? Yeah, <laughs> and... I just, I just want to add back to talking about this rural-urban difference that we've kind of been talking about. It's very interesting for us at Cornell because we're a land-grant institution. So we were actually a government-created enti- well, entity to be a public service for this area. Um, you know, I think Virginia Tech is one of them, yep. UT Austin, a lot of these places that are blue, these like blue gems in the sea of red. And so it was just very interesting because of um, perhaps like, I don't know, that we don't really think about ourselves as kind of a government service to kind of redevelop this area and i think that's what our, our department tries to do with the extension it does but that's i mean yes that's part of the mission of these universities they're called land-grant universities right are we're supposed to be in contact with the rural outside with these guys who are who all voted trump and and you know like i said i couldn't tell you if there's anybody in the department who did right yeah <laughs> 
that's a bit nuts. Yeah, it's it's almost shamed being you know here on college ground. Everyone's for was for Hillary, and mm-hmm. even in my classes, um, some of our professors would you know make sure you guys get out and vote, and um, <laughs> and, and it you could tell you know who, which way they're leaning, and you know when it gets this touchy, um, and it's, it's almost personal, and, and preferences come out very easily. So I've definitely experienced some of that. Um, I'm from Tampa, Florida, and there was a lot of red there, even in my family, surprising, you know, even being in a a city area. So I have that little bit of experience. I I was deeply liberal growing up in, um, in high school and concerned with the world. And then you learned economics. (laughs) And learned (laughs) economics and shifted a little bit more, right. And then, um, but you know, now I'm just more curious, you know, it just uh, observational. So it's interesting to, to listen to all these stories and see people's different viewpoints of the world can yeah can and can be so validating for them. Yeah. So, Siren, you're from Turkey and you've definitely had you know your share <laughs> of political struggles. Is how, do, how does this compare? How, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like told before, I mean, I don't remember any election that I'm happy after. And so, like, I mean, but for this, like, uh, for the U.S. election, I feel like. That uh, it's the situation which happened in like 15 years ago in Turkey because like our president I guess like first uh, got elected in that uh, year and I mean he was uh, we, we were like all mocking the other people who elected for him and now I see that many US like American people like and they're like always I mean we. They're mocking the Trump, uh, Trump supporters, and I mean they don't get the idea why they elected for him. So, I mean, I don't know what should what, what should you do, but probably like more try to understand them. And I mean, I think this like mocking is not the solution as I see in my country. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so there are some. There's a lot to be said for just even understanding why they were voting, right? I mean, I, I, I do worry that it's been caricatured a bit too much that, that people lose sight of. There, there are actually some good economic reasons you might want to vote for Trump. There are some, some social issues you might care about that would lead you to vote for Trump. Yeah, and I, I just want to add to that too. I think there's perhaps within this protesting is there's this fear of a lack of compromise that we've yeah. moved so far over, you know, that unless... You know, it's no longer there's there's not this willingness to compromise. And so yeah. perhaps, you know, within not knowing what the other person voted, we've now moved f- further towards the spectrum. I mean, there's a lot of comparison between Donald Trump supporters and Bernie Sanders supporters. Um, and now it's like, well, we're not going to be able to even put a voice in. So and that's I think where a lot of the fear comes from. It's that it doesn't that they feel that their voice has now been taken away. And I mean, then other people feel like their voice has actually been heard for once yeah. in a yeah. long time. So so. Then the key to, to sort of overcoming this fear is, is first off, understanding people on the other side. Mm-hmm. And how do we do that if we never talk to each other? Well, actually, <laughs> I, met, I met a Republican guy in, like, Ithaca, and, like, surprisingly, and in, at the night of elections, and he was drinking his beer in a pub, like, alone, like, hiding away from the community, and he was really happy for, like, a change. Because, like, I think America is a world of changes, and, like, Hillary has the old figure in people's minds, and, like, when the Trump was the Trump has meaning is the meaning of change for them. So and he was really excited about it. Yeah. 
Yeah. But he was in hiding, so he has he was not talking to anybody like to his neighbors or someone else. Like he was talking to us. And as perhaps this is devil's advocate here, but perhaps if in, in rural areas you have that social safety net where people do talk to their neighbors and they, I think they hear their struggles more throughout this community involvement, perhaps less less government um, aid or help will now re-invite people actually talking to their neighbors. I don't know to what extent has the, what's it called, the nuclear family affected the fact that we don't talk to people anymore? I mean, that's Robert Putnam's huge argument in Bowling Alone and a lot of this work. Yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. perhaps perhaps in some ways, this now shows that we need to talk to the person next door to us because and like because it's it, it's not working. And I think the fact that the whole world is surprised too shows that, it, <laughs> shows that it's not working. <laughs> Yes, the whole world aside from China and, and from currently China, Russia. Russia. <laughs> Maybe the Philippines too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think moving forward, it'll be interesting now to see how, the, how France is going to respond as well and the whole Brexit thing. But yeah, how do we, how do we talk to our neighbors? How do we, I, so to me, this is the interesting thing because, you know, this media that had, had been so wrong because they didn't have contact with half the country I, I was I was hoping I'd start reading headlines, you know, with them wringing their hands, thinking, well, maybe we need to start having some some better contact out there and some some sort of finger on the pulse of, of rural America. And you you, but you look at the headlines today, and it's mm-hmm. all about the the pain of gra- mm-hmm. you know students. So one of my friends, I can't say who, but he um, he's a huge Democratic uh, person in terms of also Terry McAuliffe's. A government in Virginia, okay. and he works in the Southwest Virginia law. And he was he was actually contacted the DNC saying, if you want to learn, if you want to test experiment our district, one of these district communities on how to get the rural vote, and to start listening to rural people to help the Democratic Party, because this this is an area that has been yeah. definitely missed, and it's going to. I think that'll be interesting development of how do you get trust back from people who don't want to compromise with you and feel that you haven't. And how, does, how do you start a conversation that people feel that you weren't willing to have until your person lost? I don't know, but that would be an interesting way to roll. I mean, there's a lot of, yeah, I, I don't know how to, I don't know what to say about that, but. I, so that's, that's actually a really good point because this, this constituency, the white blue collar workers, right? This, this used to be basically evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. And there was actually a little bit of swing in that, that voting block. And, it's it's yeah they just lost it they just absolutely lost it this time uh, it's it'll be really interesting to see because you're gonna have to seek out this this group they they have been heard and uh, and anybody who's gonna win this next election they've gotta they've gotta pay attention to their worries and just adding on to these are aging communities are not millennials right, right? Yeah. so they don't have yeah. that base they um, are typically gonna be less uh, demographically diverse. So you're going to have a lot more Caucasian-heavy communities. There are places that don't have blue-collar unions, so there's no reason for them really to support the Democratic Party in terms of some of that aspect. Um, They will associate NAFTA, I think, forever with the Democratic Party, at least in the near future. Which is funny, because both parties were involved in putting it together. Well, it's okay. We we know from this election, fact-checking does not matter. That's right. You know, and, and some of these communities also have a lot of, you know, they don't really care maybe, I don't say they don't care about the environment, but they have an economic interest not to care as much about the environment as, you know, like right. coal right. is what is, at least in my family, everybody's a coal miner, my papa was a coal miner, my great papa was a coal miner, everyone's a coal miner, and that's how they want to continue it. So there's no incentive to really 
to join the join one side, you know, to have a conversation with some, with, you know, there's no what yeah. what part of the ideology can transform. And a part that places that we see these protests, these very far areas like Portland, New York can have a conversation with where I'm from, Wyoming County, West Virginia. I don't I don't know. It's I mean, I, I think that's actually a, a very, very big challenge. Probably something bigger than we can we can tackle today, yeah, but it's yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, one way or the other, if if there's even just a possibility of getting some of these things represented in media in front of of urban audiences, they can start to understand that. I, I you know, even if you live in rural America, you see urban media all the time, and that doesn't necessarily give you you know a sense of everything that's going on in urban areas, but but you at least have some idea. Well, I think Nate Silver and that whole gang are definitely start the polling. Start at least polling them, <laughs> getting their, we'll get their voices at least heard in the polls somehow. Gallup, I guess they're going to start, you know, everyone's going to start re-waiting. You've got, yeah, <laughs> you've got to rethink it and, and yeah, we, we have rural people. We need to worry about them too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Those are some really great insights, guys. Um, thank you all for joining us today. Um, any, any last thoughts or... <laughs> I, I guess uh, my only last thought would be hey go, go try reading some of the news from the other side's media and I think a great <laughs> way to kind of open up that exposure there's a book by Thomas Sowell called um, uh, A Conflict of Visions and it, it's all about seeing perspectives from other people's point of view and he talks yeah. about two major points of view, the constrained and the unconstrained. And I think that's a really good opener for someone trying to understand and, and empathize with other people. And I think we're going to need to do that now. I also add on the on the book thing, there's a, a really, I, I'm not sure how much I agree with his depiction, but um, but there's a book called Hillbilly Elegy. It's been made a lot of headlines. It's by J.D. Vance, and he's from. He's one of those success stories that comes from an Appalachia with a broken family and ends up going to Yale. Um, and it, it ta he talks really about what about this population that's been left out by uh, by um, I guess Washington and why why yeah. they feel that yeah. way. But yeah, that's yeah. just talking to your neighbor. Great start. Yeah. Great start. I would say for that, like people should not be strict about their thoughts and maybe like more open-minded, like to talk to their neighbors and like so because. Otherwise, people will like continue being like not admitting their real thoughts. Yeah. Ask so. many questions. Don't share many opinions. We'll continue to have <laughs> closeted <Yeah>. voters. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you, Jade and Saren, for being with us. Uh, until next Friday, have a good weekend. <laughs>